The plague, the Black Death, words written with alarming fear. Many people have heard of these terms before, but do you know what it is and what causes it? With symptoms ranging from fever and chills to swollen lymph nodes, pneumonia, septic shock, and death, the plague takes on numerous forms in the body. Yet, they're all the result from a single virulent microorganism known as Yersinia pestis. Tune in to learn more. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Plague of Knowledge podcast, where we will dive deep into the dark side of the micro world. My name is Joe Perry, and I'll be your host today. Now, if all of you out there looking for something soothing to listen to or just plain sick of hearing the word pandemic, I suggest you turn this off. Now, for the rest of you gloomy gluttons still with us, brace yourselves, because today we're going to get a little morbid. So buckle up and enjoy the ride as we journey back to where it all began. I'm sure you've all heard of the term plague before, right? But do you really know where it comes from? Yersinia pestis, that's where. What is Yersinia pestis, you ask? Well, Yersinia pestis, or Y pestis for short, is a highly virulent bacterium that causes the disease, you guessed it, plague. Now, plague is an acute infectious disease with a historically high mortality rate, meaning it kills most humans that become infected. This disease is typically found in small rodents such as rats or mice that have been infected with the Yersinia pestis bacterium from bites of the oriental rat flea. When host animals die, the flea may go on to another rodent or human, infecting them with the same bacterium. Now it's important to note that this disease comes in three clinical forms, pneumonic, septicemic, and bubonic, but more on those later. The bacterium we now know as Yersinia pestis is the culprit behind not one, but three great plague pandemics throughout the world, dating all the way back to the year 541 AD. The first plague pandemic started with the plague of Justinian and continued until the year 767 according to historical records. This first pandemic spread from Central Africa to Egypt and through the Mediterranean, killing anywhere from 15 to 100 million people. That's approximately 25% of the population at the time. But wait, there's more. Fast forward roughly 600 years, and the next major series of plague epidemics began, starting with the most fatal pandemic ever recorded, the Black Death. While there is some debate on when the Black Death first started, its first definitive appearance was in Crimea in the year 1347. From Crimea, it was likely spread from the fleas living on black rats on board slave ships that traveled through the Mediterranean basin and reaching Africa, Western Asia, and the rest of Europe. Now, according to historical documents, people gathered on the docks in Italy as 12 ships docked and were horrified to discover that most sailors were dead and those still alive were gravely ill and covered in black boils that oozed blood and pus. The Black Death finally ended in the year 1351 taking approximately 200 million lives with it. That was about 50% of Europe's population at the time. And while the plague was still very much alive and well after the Black Death, it had died down quite a bit. That is until the year 1855 when the plague re-emerged in Yunnan, China. This third plague pandemic waxed and waned throughout the world for over a century. Imagine being quarantined for that long. It ultimately ended in 1959 with a death toll of 15 million people taking lives in China, 
Hong Kong, India, Australia, and the Americas. And while we may not have had the plague in our lifetime, it surprisingly still exists today, with the occasional outbreak popping up here and there. Although, it no longer takes as many victims as it had in the past. Thank goodness for that though, right? Now with all that death, destruction, and devastation talk aside, let's take a close look at the culprit behind it all. Yersinia pestis. Who is this pesky pathogen, capable of annihilating half of Europe's population? Where did it even come from? Who discovered it? I'm glad you asked. In comes French bacteriologist Alexandre Yersin. Sounds familiar, right? Well, the year was 1894, and China was in the throes of the third plague pandemic. Two scientists arrived in Hong Kong to study samples taken from those infected, hoping to find some much-needed answers. Now, the first to arrive was Japanese physician and bacteriologist Kitasaru Shibasaburu. He was actually the first to be credited isolating the plague bacteria. However, upon review of his publications, his findings were deemed imprecise as the samples were contaminated with another bacteria called pneumococci. While Kitasadu was performing his research and publishing his findings, Alexandra stayed the course and continued to do his own research. Unlike Kitasadu, who was looking at the blood of the infected, Alexandra was actually culturing fluid directly from the swollen lymph nodes. With his microscope, he was able to visualize faintly staining gram-negative bacilli with rounded ends. To follow up on these findings, he inoculated the bacteria into mice and guinea pigs, and sure enough, they came down with the same illness. Upon discovery, he actually named the organism Pastorella pestis after his mentor Louis Pasteur, but in 1944, the organism was reassigned to a newly defined genus called Yersinia, resulting in what we now know today as Yersinia pestis. Let us look at some general signs and symptoms in the different types of plague that can be spread by Yersinia pestis. For a moment, let's pretend you're infected with the bacterium Yersinia pestis. That's right, you now have the plague. What are some of the signs and symptoms that you may experience? Well, this depends on what type of plague you have, as there are three. You have the bubonic, septicemic, and pneumonic. Now, all three plagues actually have an incubation period, which is the time for the symptoms to surface, and they can range anywhere from 2 to 10 days. Now, with the bubonic plague, symptoms include sudden fever, headache, chills, swollen and painful lymph nodes called buboes, and can travel from the lymphatic system to other systems and tissues if left untreated. Second, you have the septicemic plague, which is an infection that, the infection that enters the bloodstream. And these symptoms can include fever, chills, extreme weakness, abdominal pain, shock, and possibly bleeding into the skin and other organs. And it can potentially cause skin and other tissues to die and turn black, especially on the fingers, toes, and the nose. Now, the most serious of the three is called the pneumonic plague. This is where Yersinia pestis makes its way into the lungs and wreaks all kinds of havoc. Symptoms here include fever, headache, weakness, and a rapidly developed pneumonia with shortness of breath, chest pain, cough, and sometimes bloody or watery mucus. This is the only form that is contagious, spreading from person to person via droplets. It is also the rarest form. Now diving a little deeper, let's examine the characteristics of Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis is a gram-negative, non-motile, rod-shaped coxobacillus bacterium without spores. It is a facultative anaerobic organism that can infect humans via an infected flea. Now the plague is capable of surviving in both aerobic and anaerobic environments. 
I know, I know. A lot of big words, right? Well, let us break it down. Yersinia pestis is a coxobacillus, meaning it is somewhere between a coxi and bacilli, resulting in a short, rod-shaped morphology. When Y. pestis is examined under a microscope, it is usually seen as a single coxobacillus or uh, comes in pairs. Now, because it is a gram-negative bacterium, Yersinia pestis has an inner membrane, a thin layer of peptidoglycan, a periplasmic space, and an outer membrane which contains these complex endotoxins called lipopolysaccharides. Now, the results of the gram stain would render the bacterium pink because the cell wall is so thin that the crystal violet would rinse off with the alcohol leaving it pink in color from the counterstained saffronin. Additionally, it's also important for, to know this information because it also determines what kind of antibiotics we can give to treat Yersinia pestis. Now, as mentioned earlier, Yersinia pestis is a non-motile, facultative anaerobic bacterium without spores so it can survive with or without the presence of oxygen. Now this is good news for the bacterium Yersinia pestis because it cannot move towards oxygen via flagellum and it cannot create endospores when conditions are unfavorable. So being able to grow with or without, without oxygen is actually contributing to its virulence. So what are some unfavorable conditions for Yersinia pestis? Well, Wypestis seems to be a tenacious little fella, surviving in water, moist meal, and grain for weeks, near freezing temperatures for months to years, as well as in dry sputum, flea feces, and buried bodies. But as tough as a bacterium may be, we do have several methods for killing it. Heating Yersinia pestis to 72 degrees Celsius or 162 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 minutes will in fact destroy the bacterium so leaving it out in the sun for several hours to let UV light destroy it. These methods are tried and true, but what if someone actually becomes infected with white pestis? We can't heat the person for 15 minutes at 72 degrees Celsius, and leaving a person out in the sunlight for hours may only give them an extreme sunburn, and yes, while it may kill the bacterium on the skin, it's not going to do anything to the bacterium that are found within the blood, the lungs, or the lymph nodes. Enter antibiotics, one of mankind's greatest discoveries. Thank you, Alexander Fleming. Now, according to the CDC, the antibiotics that are effective at destroying Y. pestis are called aminoglycosides. Aminoglycosides such as streptomycin and gentamicin disrupt protein synthesis in gram-negative bacteria. Now, remember in Chapter 3 when we learned about the ribosomes and how prokaryotic and eukaryotic ribosomes differ? Aminoglycosides' mechanism of action actually bind to the 30S subunit of the 70S ribosome and disrupt protein synthesis. This is good news for eukaryotic cells because we actually contain ADS ribosomes with different subunits. This means that aminoglycosides actually have no effect on eukaryotic cells and do not disrupt the protein synthesis that occurs within them. And typically, the combination of antibiotics are given to combat the plague. Antibiotics and good hygiene have dramatically helped keep plague cases low to non-existent. However, Yersinia pestis is still an aggressive strain of bacterium, having developed mechanisms that help it suppress our immune system and evade phagocytosis. But more on that next week in episode 2. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in today, as I hope you have learned a lot and enjoyed the show. Tune in next week for episode 2 of this 3-episode podcast. Until next time. <laughs>